0: The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays, and get access to exclusive content, ticket presales to live events, monthly Q and A's with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you.
1: Hello there, everybody. This is Glenn Lowry. You have tuned in to The Glenn Show, and I'm so grateful. Thank you. I uh, teach at Brown University, where I am the muckety-muck professor of something. Uh, I'm a professor of economics And uh, I am a fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research in New York City. John Paulson, senior fellow and host of The Glenn Show. And I'm joined uh, this week at The Glenn Show by Robert Cherry, who's an old friend of mine. Robert Cherry is an economist. He's emeritus, as you can see from looking at him.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, a lot Uh, of people don't retire. I got (laughs) colleagues who are older than me. I know, man, I know. but I'm retired. He's a professor, professor at the Brooklyn College City
1: University of New York, economist, old lefty. Uh, when I first met Bob, he was, you know, probably a democratic socialist or some stripe or another. He writes about uh, poverty and inequality and race and education and labor markets and low income stuff. And, you know, and, and Bob is he's a guy that gets his hands dirty with the data and he wants to look at, you know, what's going on. In, uh, the statistical stuff, and he's he's a very thoughtful, interesting guy. So I'm glad to have him on. And author of a new book. Bob, your book. This is the time to show the book. The State of the Black Family, 60 Years of Tragedy and Failure and New Initiatives Offering Hope. Robert Cherry. So, welcome Bob,
0: to The Glenn Show. Well, thanks for having me again, Glenn. And it's always great to talk to you. It is great to talk to you too. I appreciate, you know... <laughs>
1: finding somebody almost as old as I am to talk to. <laughs> no offense, man. No, no offense. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the state of the Black family, man, goodness. Uh, I think a couple of things when I hear that title, I think about Daniel Patrick Moynihan, 1965, Negro Family, the Case for National Action, and whatnot. Uh, but I also think how also 1980s, you know, also, you know, dating yourself. Who talks about family anymore? We live in the new age of, you know, anti cis heteronormativity.
0: Well, <laughs> we, yeah. I, I tell you, I didn't want that title, but my editor was adamant that that be the title. And the reason why I didn't want the title is. I have a lot in the book about policies to move struggling central city black communities forward and the people who live in those housing policies, crime policies, education policies, and family policies. And I thought that having the title, The State of the Black Family, would sort of detract from looking at the initiatives in the book, but what I came to believe is that you really can't fully look at those initiatives without confronting issues related to the black family. I had that in the book i and uh, but I think it's an overriding issue, not only because The family is so important historically in giving the resources, the guidance that allows the next generation to move forward. But because I think liberals are so, so concerned about not blaming the victim that they've taken any discussion of the family off the table. So I, when we agreed on the new title, I had to change a little bit in the book, but actually not that much. But what I changed, I think made the book more effective. Okay.
1: Well, I, I think I should now is the time to disclose that I have written uh, a forward yes. for the book. Yes. So I have endorsed the book. <laughs> in, a, in in effect, by being willing to write the forward and in the forward, I, among other things, try to distinguish between uh, the bias narrative and the development narrative, which has been one of my, you know, talking points for the last few years in emphasizing how we have to think not only about structural racism but also about social capital, you know we have to think about development we, we have to think about how people get skills how they how they become prepared for the rigors of modern life, how they develop they don't do it you know on their own they they do it through uh, various kinds of dynamics and processes, and if they haven't developed they haven't learned to read, if they're not in control of their impulses, if if they're not sort of suited to the rigors and the competition of of the labor market and, you know, managing their own affairs and whatnot, then we're going to have a problem. So, I mean, I think the family comes in, you can tell me what you think about this, because it is one of the sites, one of the principal sites where that kind of development happens for kids. Uh, and hence, the leftist taboo on talking about it because it seems like you're blaming people for their culture uh, really is kind of a distraction It diverts our attention from some of the most important things. So anyway, that's my little two cents about that. But uh, you had to be talked
0: into it uh, by your editor, you say. Yes, yes, and... Uh... As I said, you know I have. I had a. I have a couple of chapters that discuss this. I mean, I think what you have to do is get into the family early, and that's through visiting nursing programs, uh, where you meet the parents, walk the mother while she's pregnant, carry through the first two to three years. And these visiting nursing programs, there's nothing revolutionary about it. Bill de Blasio in New York City uh, was an advocate and put money into it. Not that much, but there's nothing revolutionary about going into the family. Those women appreciate the resources they get because it doesn't only help them in their mothering, but often these visiting nurses give them help in making decisions about their own lives. I mean, after all, it's still about a quarter of black children are born to unwed mothers who are younger than twenty four so it's not teenagers anymore, but it's still young mothers who often don't have any sort of guidance from their own upbringing that can lead them to do these things. And then there are visiting programs that help the kids get ready for school. Um, but these programs get into the family. They're not like universal uh, pre-K, which is meant to be a substitute for the family. That's the liberal view. We can substitute through resources, et cetera, the family. and. One of the things that is most upsetting is that liberals have basically given up on changing the dynamics where you have so many young black kids uh, failing in school early, you know, being maybe 25% of Central City black kids are at grade level in the fourth grade in reading and math. And they just given up on what to do. Uh, I had an article recently on that. Yeah. You yeah, know, I, I only interrupt you because so much information
1: is flowing and I want to try to keep yeah. track of it. So the black family. So I want to talk about race. Why is it the black family? So um, getting into the family as opposed to getting around the family. That's right. You say you say liberals want to substitute for the family, but the programs you're interested in get into the family. So um, I want you to develop that to develop that. Okay. And and on giving up. So, I mean, and I, I agree. I, I mean, that's why I wrote a forward for your book. I mean, the challenge for us is to actually confront and reverse the deficits that are at hand, not not to kind of paper them over, which indirectly reveals a lack of confidence in us that we can actually, you know, get to a different place. So can, can you address, I mean, so that was three things. That was race, why the Black family. That was uh, getting around the family versus getting into the family. Uh, and then that was, you know, who really does believe in the capacities of Black people. The, the, the ones who, you know, have in effect given up are the ones who want to get their hands dirty trying to do something about it.
0: Well, you know, the first point, which I didn't get into, is why the black family? Right. And I think it's it's a black box in a lot of ways in that, <laughs> no, you just, you know, why is it? Clearly, something happened in the 60s that... Reverse Because up until the 60s, you know, black marriage rates, children born to married couples, was not very different than white numbers. So this is not a legacy of slavery. It's not something that's because of poverty, because certainly in the 40s and 50s, black families were incredibly poor. Uh, So...
1: Let me just mention, yeah. Bob. Excuse me for interrupting. Excuse me. I want you to go on. Herbert Gutman, the Black Family in Slavery and Freedom. That's the book. Yes, that people need to consult. This is a social historian. The book is published in the 1980s, if I'm not mistaken. But it is it nails this point that you were talking about. If you look from emancipation into the Depression, what you see is a lot of coherence, a lot of low uh, out of wedlock birth rates, high marital rates, and stuff like that. It's only post 1960, 1965, when Moynihan became, started to become aware, that you begin to see the kind of things that we're talking about, or at least post World War II. So that's a really important point. But go ahead.
0: Right. Uh, You know, it's because, well, so, you know, there's one theory that the welfare system is the culprit. That is, it, You could get welfare if you weren't married. And so you have this, the real increase was in the 70s and the 80s in the rate of illegitimacy. Uh, When Moynihan wrote it was, you know, 25% of black children were born out of wedlock. And by the time you get to two thousand, it's at sixty eight to seventy percent, and it's sort of stayed there since so something happened in and and even in the nineties it had already been up high so it's really in the seventies and the eighties and one argument is that welfare reform. Release black men from responsibility, and in fact, made it costly because if they married, you wouldn't get all these benefits. The other argument is unemployment, and uh, that was something uh, William Julius Wilson wrote about in the 1980s: the lack of employable black men. So I think, you know, both of those things are there, but for me, it it's the kind of victimization theories that have sort of undercut a certain amount of initiative, particularly among black men. Black women have been very successful, particularly since welfare reform in the 1990s, Uh, educational attainment, occupational growth. uh, But black men have really been left behind. And so I don't, you know, we could go into these historical which theories are better, but the problem today is Black men have been left behind.
1: Okay, I I, want to stop you for a minute because I I don't want to leave the family question. And I want to say a couple of things. One of them is that the out-of-wedlock birth rates have risen for everybody. Except maybe, perhaps the Asians.
0: <laughs> well, not but for I immigrant mean, groups. Not for immigrant groups. They haven't risen for Nigerians, Nigerian uh-huh. Americans, etc.
1: Out of wedlock birth rates. So this is a cultural phenomenon that's society wide, and you can blame whoever you want to. You can blame feminism, or you can blame the pill, or you know, you can blame whoever you want to. But the, the fact of the matter is that you know, if the number has gone from twenty five percent. Of black in 1965 to 60 or 70 percent in 2020, the number for all Americans has gone from five or 10 percent in 1965 to 35 or 40 40%, percent in 2020. So, so that's one thing. The other thing is we're talking about marriage and childbearing. You use the word illegitimacy which is a normative judgment. It's a value judgment. And we're talking about race. So we're talking about how do men and women get together, reproduce, what's the nature of their intimate life? Uh, what's their c- connection to their children? So we're, it's gut level, very intimate stuff. And... Uh, it's very easy to to demonize it and to weaponize it and to politicize it. So, you know, did welfare, which is, you know, a big social program about how you take care of poor people, cause the Black family to fall apart? That's one of the propositions. And then clearly that is every bit as much an ideological yes. claim as it is a scientific claim, you know? So how, how do you situate yourself within this... You know, I mean, the reason that people would would not take seriously the Black family is that they see it as a very old-fashioned, conservative, uh, you know, apple pie, middle America, you know, and and it gets around the real issue. And the real issue is money. The real issue is power. The the real issue is stratification and wealth.
0: So, on. (laughs) excuse me. But you see what I'm getting at. No, no, but... Well, it's one of the reasons I was reluctant to put so centrally the family with the title. Because as I've described, while I certainly think the idea would be increased marriage rates, and I think adolescents should be encouraged to understand you know, the, the success sequence of you first finish school, you get a job, you get married, and then you have kids, you know. That should be an important thing that is encouraged in adolescence, in high schools, and so on. But the reality is, as you mentioned, this is not simply black America. It's becoming much more widespread that you have low marriage rates and out-of-wedlock births. So as you notice, the things that I mentioned had nothing to do with encouraging marriage. There is stuff in the book and I've, I've actually published stuff about, uh, changing taxes, uh, tax programs that discourage marriage and so forth. But I think we have to get resources in an effective way to single parents so that their kids can strive. I, I, you just can't, while it's clear that the two-parent family is a road, much easier road to success than the road that single parents have to travel, the reality is they're single parents, and these are women who have a lot of balls to juggle. they work, <laughs> schoolings, but younger, I'm talking about these younger mothers, they have work, they have schooling, they have social relations, they've got a lot of things, and we have to find ways to help them and not simply say, well, you know, you should find a man and get married. Uh, I. I have things about fatherhood programs and so on in the book but I I don't want to get off track too much from saying this is the reality and for me it's until we we turn around the situation of black men you can't expect the marriage rates to grow because there just are too many black men that have have Been lost. And part of my book is what do you do with black teenagers who are not college material? You look at their uh, math, you look at their English in high school, they're not college material. And if we force them to go to college, the community college where they drop out, you have a large pool of young men who are not in school and not in work. And nothing good can come from that.
1: Okay, uh, let's let's review the bidding here a little bit. You ended there with black men, and what about their educational development? But you started with mothers and families. Yes, and and how we had to help them. You mentioned marriage. You you don't necessarily think it's a panacea, but you do think there's a definite I don't correlation with the data. It
0: would. It might be a panacea, but it's just not a reality. <laughs>
1: What I was going to say is, you know, I mean, in some sense, in some sense, marriage is an outcome, not a cause. I mean, in other words, if people are committed to each other and they're resourceful and and they're stable and whatnot, they elect to get married. And the fact that their marriage didn't cause their lives to be uh, well ordered, it was, in fact, the other way around that, you know, that the causality. No, no. um, And the issue is the impact on children. So what do you think about this hypothesis? So it's definitely true. The outcomes for women and men are different. Women are doing better. And I'm talking about poor people, but I'm also talking about poor black people. But it's not only black people, but women are doing better. They, they have, you know, they're not in jail. They're not the victims of violent crime to the same extent. They're completing school. They're overrepresented amongst those who are going to college and whatnot.
0: Including blacks in the historic black colleges. It's two-thirds. Yes. <laughs> two-thirds of the students are female. Now, here's what I'm speculating
1: and I want to get your re- reaction to, which is that there is, if you have children, so, so if you're a woman, you could get pregnant and you could, you know, choose to pre- carry the pregnancy to term, and then you got a kid and you're a mother, and that's an important part of being a woman for a lot of women. There's nothing more gravitating to focus the attention than a baby that's crying and needs to be fed or comforted or taken care of. And that becomes a mission in life. And a mission in life is a very grounding thing. And it, you know, makes you think about the future. It, it makes you think about how you have responsibilities. And is it possible that the it, amongst the distressed population of marginalized, low-income, minority, Black, poor, the fact that women are on average doing better at various social outcomes than men is a reflection of the fact that it's women and not men who are responsible for the children who come into the world and that those responsibilities focus their attention in ways that cause them to make choices in their lives that end up with them having better employment outcomes, better mental health outcomes, lower, et cetera.
0: Well, what do you think about that? Well, I think it's, you know, there's a family dynamics, uh, in the black community where many of these young mothers sequentially have partners and give birth. So you have kids in a lot of families where some of the children are from former relationships. And there's a lot of evidence that the men in the family the new father, is much more focused on his own child than the child the mother brings to the relationship from former relationships. And particularly males, male children, I think get left behind if they're from the former relationship. You know, the mother is going to be closer to the daughter. and the son okay and so i think in a lot of these situations and they don't really have a father figure they have a stepfather but they don't they don't have the same thing as having the biological father being with them
1: so let i let me think, just ask you bob how how many families this is the multiple partner paternity problem that you're talking about how how many families does
0: this i think almost. it affects uh it could affect close to half half because you know the sequential relationship i mean there's some evidence that close to half the women have children with these sequential partners uh it it's a large number uh but as I said, you I think there's evidence that it is the male children that are most adversely affected about this dynamics. It's also what happens to male children is the violence in the community. That is, they have to feel that they have to be tough so that they don't get picked on. You know, they have dynamics that the that young girls they have different dynamics, but, but the boys have dynamics that yeah. lead them to have behavioral issues, both in school and after school fights and so on, that are much more prevalent among black. So, so you really have a kind of gauntlet that young black men have to run. And too many of them, that get to high school are just not educational material and that's why in the book i have a lo- I have a couple of chapters on uh, vocational training and and many of these you know when when someone speaks about vocational training they think about plumbers and uh carpenters these are kids that don't have the the skills to become that they may not even have the skills to become uh, air, air conditioner repair men. Uh, as someone mentioned, you need a 10th grade reading to, do, to go through the manuals uh, for these uh, more sophisticated uh, machines that have to be repaired. So they often start, may have to start with pr- pretty low-level certificate programs which they can build on. And it could be the first time that they have a positive outcome in their educational experience when they complete a a certificate program. And these certificates are stackable. So you get one, gets you a low-level entry position, but then you pass the second certificate and you move up. Uh, The problem with this is no politician, no anti poverty organization is gonna get uh applause for getting kids into low level certificate programs. Now, if you can get them into carpenter programs, yeah, that'll be good. But these low level programs that unfortunately many of these kids have to start in have no uh no upside politically uh, for for liberals, it's it, it's putting off for a generation the middle, the strong middle class. So they'll they'll shove these kids into community colleges, if possible.
1: This seems to be a very important and perhaps contentious point. So I I, I want to underscore it. Good. It starts with a recognition of the cognitive deficits of the target population. I'm sorry to put it so starkly, but you know, that's what we're talking about. Reading, writing, and arithmetic. Just, Just the basic ability to perform intellectual work. And the observation is that in a certain segment of our society and the young black men who are dispossessed in the central cities and are filling up the jails and whatnot are a central part of that population. Those deficits are manifest. The People don't have those skills. It uh, goes on to say, elite visions about what, quote, reform looks like are formulaic and disconnected from reality. These are my words, Bob, but I, I'm trying to challenge you. I agree
0: you. with you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they think, Everybody's supposed to get a degree in sociology, when as a matter of fact, <laughs> that is not the... Re- I'm sorry, I don't mean to be pejorative. They they think everybody needs a four-year college degree and they're supposed to go to community college and then they're supposed to transfer and whatnot, when in fact, that's not realistic. Let me give
0: you an example. A couple of years ago, Michigan required all of its seniors to take the SAT. The results were, now, uh, about 89% did. so. This is a particular population, uh, many of whom ordinarily would not take the SAT. But out of that population, only 16% scored 1, a 1,000. That's th-
1: 500 on each of the two tests. Total, it could, whatever. Which it is totaled. below the median, probably, or very close to the median.
0: But it's also what almost any educator believes is the minimum necessary for you to perform reasonably well in college material. Yeah. 1,000. 16. And only 3% got over 1,200, which is the number that the much more demanding schools expect. So you have a lot. But let's get back to this 84% that didn't get 1,000. It doesn't do them a service, many of them, to shove them in to college. You go to the community colleges and you'll transfer to the four-year colleges. Yeah. You know, you look at the failure rate out of the community colleges. Yeah. It's, it's appalling. And instead, vocational training is what many need. And unfortunately, many need vocational training. At a pretty low level to begin the process. Of well, them that's the point up. that
1: I wanted. I wanted to call attention to you are saying, "Not carpenter, not plumber." I mean, and those guys are making six figures if they get in the union and they, you know, they learn yeah, their no, trade. No, right. But, but you're saying uh, even lower level than that. Given where people are, you have to meet them where they are. And exactly. stackable, stackable is important because it offers the prospect of a path. Not not just a one-off thing, but I get this one, I'll get the next one, I'll develop into my uh into my sinecure, you know, as a as a you know, skilled employee. And there
0: are places in Louisiana, in South Carolina, where this kind of strategy for high school students has been incredibly successful in moving people along. but uh, uh, for liberals, it's the four-year college for all, uh, because that will get you into the solid middle class immediately. That's their claim now. You have to be able to get that degree. And in many cases, that degree is becoming uh, deflated where you have much more social promotion going on. Even At at Brooklyn College, just to give an example, uh, the community colleges... You had to take remediation if you didn't have a level of math and English. And it was keeping people from getting out of the community college, the math in particular. So they just dropped that requirement. You don't have to get through remediation. You just go into courses. So you had a lot of students now graduating who had marginal math skills, and they were going into – they wanted to go into business. Well, business, you have to take finance, you have to take economics courses. They were failing these courses. So what did they do? They first said, well, we'll give more student help and this and that. That didn't work. So then they identified faculty who were disproportionately giving low grades to Black and Latino students. This is explicit. They identified the faculty. Who were giving low grades, and they offered these faculty counseling, like reeducation. <laughs> I'm seriously—that's wow. what. Now, what happened immediately? You got grade inflation. So okay. ne- when I taught, I when I taught, it was very. I had a struggle not to give 20%, 25 percent of the introductory micro students something less than a C minus or a drop, you know, because that's the student body. And, I, you know, I would be successful in a variety of ways to get down to 15 or so. I talk to a colleague now, 75% of the students to 80% of the students in introductory micro get at least a B or, a or an A. That was That was the result of this threat by the administration that if you're identified as one of these low graders, we're gonna re educate you.
1: It's really important to get life insurance. If you have a family like I do, you know how much your loved ones depend upon you. In a worst case scenario, you wouldn't wanna to have to worry about them having enough money. A good life insurance plan can give you peace of mind that if something were to happen to you, your family will have a safety net to cover mortgage payments and college costs and other expenses so that they can get back on their feet and focus on what's most important. Perhaps you already have coverage through work. You should know that employer-sponsored life insurance may not offer enough protection for your family, and it won't follow you if you leave your job. I can tell you from personal experience, as a man in his 70s who remarried after his former wife passed away to a younger woman, that it's super satisfying to check life insurance off of my to-do list. And getting covered can be even more satisfying when you use Policy Genius. Policy Genius was built to modernize the life insurance industry. Their technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $25 a month for as much as a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius has licensed agents who can help you find the best fit for your needs. They work for you, not the insurance companies. That means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another so you can trust their guidance. Policy Genius is for parents, for caregivers, and anyone else who has people who depend upon them. They simplify the process of getting life insurance so that you can protect the people you love. There are no added fees, and your personal details are private. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net. You deserve a smarter way to find and buy it. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and to see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. But I, you know, I see the picture. You could write the novel. Right. This is this is Brooklyn College, City University of New York. You know, very ethnic, very working class. Yes. Uh, who, are the, who are the faculty? I'll bet you they're overly Jewish. I'll bet you they're uh, older i bet you they're white males, not entirely, but substantially. Well, they have a
0: lot of women. There's a lot of women. Well, okay, uh, a lot of women.
1: But, uh, but but you know, and I'm saying, how do you hold the ground? You 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 said 25% with a C or less? God. A C minus less. 25. That's a, that is a huge number of people at the bottom of the pyramid. And you're right. It wouldn't be sustainable in the modern university in most places. That's right. But I'm 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 envisioning the picture of the old guards like yourself, grizzled, standards bearing. You know, you're going to hold you know, the look, line. You're going to hold the line against the barbarians I mean, at
0: the gates. <laughs> look, I, I never got complaints from students because I gave all kinds of options to get up to the sea. So I, I'd say if if you, if you want to get up to the sea, I'll drop one of the three exams. You want to get higher? I don't do that. But to get to the sea, I'll drop it. I get I gave out of class help I let them use a sheet of notes during the exam you can't believe what I did and you know my exam to to get a C uh anyway I'm just saying that's the nature of the community college graduates now you have a lot of a lot of weak students go in and historically they don't even graduate you know, the graduation, the six-year graduation rate out of the community colleges in New York for many of them was 20 or 25% before they dropped the remediation requirement. So there's a lot of weak students who've been shoved into the community college. And if you then have social promotion and they can transfer to the four-year, you get this dynamics. I'm sure that's the way it is in Chicago. That's the way it is in most large of the urban areas, they shove incredibly weak students into the community colleges. And then the community colleges are under pressure to have retention, high retention rates, etc. And they then move up to the four-year colleges because in urban areas, they have very little occupational training. Even if they have occupational courses, they have links to the four-year and they don't have links to jobs. That's the way it is in the CUNY. They have some occupational programs, but they're all linked to the four-year colleges because there's this obsession with four-year college for all. So, uh... Okay.
1: That's Robert Cherry on education. What about Robert Cherry on on, uh, crime and criminal justice? Do you have anything to say about that?
0: Well, look, I have a couple of chapters because crime is serious not simply because of the number of people who were killed, overwhelmingly black homicides perpetrated by black uh, criminals. Uh, So, But you have youth who live in those neighborhoods, and as I mentioned before, it leads them to become tough. For younger people, there's a certain amount of trauma living in neighborhoods where you hear gunshots, and that affects them. So that there's a wide sweep of how living in neighborhoods with high gun violence affects people overall, youth overall. And so something has to be done about it. And I think, you know, there are a number of uh, people, Thomas Abbott, comes to mind, in particular, who have this sort of targeted deterrence where police quickly are able to learn who are the most at-risk kids. Yeah. And they can confront those kids and give them a choice of going into programs and We'll give you resources. Yeah. They and if, have you meetings know,
1: with them. They have meetings. They tell them, we know who you are. Yes. We know, we know where you live. We know what you're doing.
0: Well, they have the meetings with their family.
1: Yeah. Often. To bring in the social reinforcement. And uh, you got a choice. You can keep doing what you're doing, in which case there's one path, or, you know, you can try to uh, straighten it out. Now,
0: the problem is you now have a whole host of DAs who take away the stick. In other words, they're all in favor of the carrot. We'll give you this, we'll give you that, to one degree or another, and there's some disagreement on how you do that. But they take away the stick by decriminalizing actions. You know, you have this situation in Chicago, right, where there was a rampage in the downtown, and the incoming mayor says, well, we can't demonize those kids. We have to give them social programs. Here yeah, they're destroying property. They're, you know, they're rampaging. And what he's talking about is they're the victims. We have to help them. So if you have, you know, that kind of a leadership, you have no stick to hold over people. And bail reform in New York has become like that, where, uh this kind of focused deterrence that has been effective in a number of cities is limited in its reach. Uh, and you can't change neighborhoods until you get rid of this gun violence. And liberals have no solution for communities. They have little sort of programs to try to uh, get, enable people to move out. For people to move your, your out. Your solution. Your solution is focused deterrence.
1: I think that's one of
0: them. But you have to. You have to have the police directly involved. They have to work with social workers. They have to work with community groups that are violence disruptors. There are a number of things that have to be coordinated. Uh, besides this, finding the kids and having talks. There are some effective community groups that are violence disruptors. They're in the community. They can work with these kids to some degree. And young adults, it's not just kids. You know, it's uh, people in their late 20s. Uh, But they have to be coordinated with the police, as it is with social workers. Uh, So, and there are a number of cities... I, I studied a number of cities where it. it was incredibly effective. Newark is one of them. St. Paul, Minneapolis is another. St. Petersburg, well, I, you know, so. I, detect, I, I excuse me for
1: interrupting you, Bob, but I, I just want to get yeah, this on no, the no, record. I, I mean, I see a commonality. I mean, you said don't substitute for the family, get into the family. That was about family, about child rearing, about women with children. And you're saying also here, don't just, you know, you need a stick, but it's not just the stick. It's about relationships. It's about getting through to people. And it's about mobilizing communal resources, complementary with public resources in and, and an effective way. And, and I, I like that. Um, I like that very much. Uh, who is listening to this kind of talk? Because it doesn't sound like the Biden administration program. And it damn sure doesn't sound like uh, Kevin McCarthy or Donald Trump's program. Well, there is it you Eric go. Adams? Is it Eric Adams' program?
0: Well, it is, but he is getting incredible pushback from you know from the city council in New York, uh, from the state representative, even to get a marginal adjustment to this outrageous bail reform that they put through, where. It's the one state in the union, New York, where judges have zero discretion over whether somebody should get bail. They have to let them go. That's right. They have to let them out without bail uh, for a whole ring of uh, charges against them. So it's the only state in the union, zero discretion of the judges. So you have a situation where in Rikers Island, where people are held on bail, more than eighty percent of the people who are held on bail are on violent felonies. There's that you you can't you can't avoid. You can't just let them out on the street if it's a violent felony. But if it's a nonviolent felony, like you you rob cars, you uh, shoplift, yeah. you know. You do all kinds are, of things that are nonviolent. You can now get out.
1: Oh. Well, Bob, you know, there is another side, you know, to the bail reform debate. I, I don't want to rehearse it here just to say people have not been convicted of a crime and the disproportionate impact on low-income people or having to post a cash bond. before. I you agree get with out.
0: you. And, and 10 yeah. years ago, half of the people in Rikers awaiting trial because they couldn't meet bail, half of the people were there for misdemeanors. That was outrageous, but that was, that was ended even before this current bail reform. But you're right that historically it has been, uh, unfair to poor people, outrageously unfair, but now it's, it's the reverse. Do you know? Did you ever encounter
1: this book by Lawrence Mead, the political scientist at NYU, called Beyond
0: Entitlement? Yeah. Well, I just actually spoke at his forum uh, last week. He's oh, uh oh. <laughs> so uh-oh. I, I know him well. <laughs> I don't agree with. He's he's gone off the deep edge on some. Yeah, things. on
1: the immigration stuff and yes. the American <laughs> culture stuff. I agree. I agree. But the book, this book, very much resonates with what you're saying in my mind. I mean, in the argument of the book was it used to be back in the 30s in the Roosevelt New Deal that the real issue was class struggle and getting social policy so that it redistributed income. And the issue was the redistribution of economic resources. Right. But here, and he's writing probably in the 1990s when this book is published, and I think he would still hold to that to this day. The issue has become... Shaping people so that they can function. Not, not giving them pecuniary resources, although that might be part of the solution in the end of, at the end of the day, but it's not the primary issue. The primary issue is governance, governing the poor, by which he means broadly having the kind of influence on their development that leads to good outcomes.
0: No, he's written about that in terms of poor, that you just don't throw money, right. but you That's try I mean. to change behavior. Isn't that what you're saying? Liberals are just vehemently against it. They want to just shove money, whether it's guaranteed income, whether it's reparations, where people don't have to change their behavior. They're upset that Republicans want to put some kind of work training requirement on food stamps or other uh, transfer payments. That are given to adults who don't have uh, child dependence. Uh, and it's outrageous. You should. What's, what's ask outrageous? Me, what's but outrageous? It's outrageous that liberals think that any type of requirement that uh, smacks of paternalism, that you're judging people's behavior, that that's wrong, that we should just. Give them money with no strings attached. I think as 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 Lawrence does, that one of the effective things that can be done, that's what was done with welfare reform in the nineteen nineties. It was strings attached. You had to be in a either in a job or in a work-related uh educational program to get aid. That's what it used to be with uh the child tax credit, that you only got the full credit if you were working. I have a proposal that if you're in school, that should count towards the child tax credit. But I think it's important to prod people in ways, and if you call that paternalistic, fine, but I think it's important to prod people to move in the right direction. Well,
1: I want to distinguish between that motivation <clears throat> for having them work, <coughs> having them work, which is, it's a nudge. It's a nudge toward a way of life that will sustain them over the longer run. I want to distinguish between that and the more kind of uh, uh, punitive, you know, they're getting my money. They damn sure ought to do something for it, where it's a kind of quid pro quo. It's like, you got your hand in my pocket. Stand up straight with your shoulders back kind of <laughs> attitude like that. <laughs> and I think when the liberals object to re- work requirement, it's the latter that they're objecting to. It's it's that you know, it's it's a kind of retribution. You know, you're you're kind of like, you know, saying that they have to jump through a hoop in order to get help that everybody should be, you know, able to get if they need the help. Uh, But, I mean, you're really saying, and I think this is the thing that people are are not willing to defend. And if they were willing to be overt about it and defend it, they might be more successful at getting it through, which is not everybody is able to function. And we're trying to help people learn how to function in life, period. People don't come into the world knowing how to take care of themselves. We're trying to help them complete their development. And that's the reason that we put structures on. You have a child, you have rules. No. People with their hands out, needing welfare support, in need, are not children. But the fact of their need may betray the fact that they haven't yet mastered all of the competencies of life. I I know how that sounds, but I think it's a realistic, and I I invite your reaction, but I think it's a realistic assessment of
0: of the situation on the ground. Well, look, you have to be sympathetic to people's situations. And certainly, uh, that's what happened at welfare reform that if there was domestic violence involved, you dealt with that before you put other requirements on women to continue to get, uh, aid from the government. Uh, and, you know, there are different kinds of ways to have, uh, outlets for people who really should not be pressed into. I mean, it, do you really want to put a sixty-one year old man uh through the ringer for him to get some food stamps? Uh you know, you this has to be done in a humanistic way. Uh, but it has but it shouldn't be simply rejected because we're not allowed to uh do any of this. Uh uh Michelle Obama was all for dealing with uh, food uh, and uh, food deserts and so on. When it came up that people wanted to restrict food stamps from being for soda, about 10% of food stamps were being used for sugary drinks. That's an impossible number to believe. It was 10%. and of Supplemental 10, Nutrition and Assistance Program money. That's food stamps. Used for sugary drink. 10%? That's what it was 10 years ago when this issue came up. And a number of people, including Mayor Bloomberg and others, said, well, we should restrict food stamps from that. And liberals refused to support that. Michelle Obama refused to support because it's paternalistic. It's only forcing poor people. Now, Philadelphia has has a tax on soda. That's okay because it covers everyone. You know, so there was this issue of yeah. you can't be paternalistic towards poor people and just let them, and, and, and then we'll deal with obesity and whatever flows from that kind of dynamics in some other well, way.
1: Let, let me say this, uh, Bob, because yeah. I think there's a counterpoint. The counterpoint is, OK, if you're right, Lowry and Cherry, and the problem is governance, it's helping people learn how to live and they might need nudges or, you know, guidelines. Uh, then where do you get the standing to tell them how to live? Look, Who, I- who's in that position? Is their their pastor? Their, their, their personal advisor? I mean, is when does that become the political imperative no, that's, for the I, government? I
0: agree, but I'm just saying liberals are firmly on one particular side, which then leads to, we'll give you money, we'll give you this, no strings attached. We're not going to give you anything which requires you to change your behavior. And I think that extreme position Is harmful and stands in the way. And it looks at, you know, like in Chicago, it looks at these kids rummaging, rampaging as victims. In New York, there's a whole argument that if 17 and 18 year olds are caught with guns, that they should not be prosecuted because they need them to survive in their neighborhoods. And these are the people who are for gun control and so on. But you get this concrete situation. In Philadelphia, it's a misdemeanor if you catch a 17 or 18-year-old with a gun. It's a misdemeanor. So, you know, this idea that we have to look at them as victims and we don't have any sticks. We'll, we'll give some carrots, but we don't have any sticks because their victims is harmful. But let me just... we. Got to be getting close to the end. Yeah, we just are. say something about the book. Yeah, thank you, know, you. the book has, certainly has stuff about this. It has stuff about housing and how you can use housing to turn around these poor neighborhoods. Uh, but I think the real problem with the book is it smacks of incrementalism. That we can do this here, we can do that, you know moving kids from off the street into relatively low level certificate programs. That's real incrementalism for many people. You know, where you you have aspirations of changing society where black Americans are fully integrated into the middle class. What are you talking about, these certificate programs? That ain't gonna do it. And there's a whole bunch of incrementalism in the book. And I appreciate the shortcomings in a larger aspirational world, the shortcomings of having these what seem like modest incremental adjustments, you know, having visiting nursing programs, having, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of that stuff in the book that moves people forward. but but doesn't move them forward fast enough or high enough for many people. And the other thing is, I, I had this with, uh, with Jason Riley, uh, that there's such an antagonism towards any government programs among some conservatives, and there's yeah. good reason. That's why in the title there is Tragedies and Failures, 60 Years of Tragedy and Failures. There's so many government programs that, however well-intentioned, yeah. they just are failures. Some of these, uh, you know, I, I just read a report on some of these anti-violence programs. They throw in millions of dollars, and they just have no results. So, so there's this reluctance to say that I've identified effective good programs run by the government because once they're run by the government, they go into work. Uh... So, I mean, I, I, I'm in a. It seems to me,
1: you're I'm in describing, a never-never world. Yeah, you're where... the, it's the moderates' dilemma. The people on the left are disappointed that you're not recommending a systemic uh, overturn and a whole reordering. You're incremental. The people on the right are saying, well, I've seen the government try and I've seen it fail. We had a war on poverty. Poverty won. What are you talking about? It's the same old liberal stuff. And you're just stuck there trying to figure out uh, how can we keep parents being more effective in developing their kids? How can we educate people in a practical way for their functioning in life? And, you know, uh, how do we respond to aberrant behavior and lawbreakers in ways that are actually, you know, uh, helpful to maintaining order and so on? You know, what, what would you do? with a 16-year-old kid with a pistol who came out of a housing project somewhere and who got caught, you're going to send him up for five years? I mean, what, what are you going to do with that A year kid? and a you half. You don't, you don't half. want him, but you do want him to go through the system because you think those 18 months at the end of the day will be helpful to him, not harmful. Well, I mean, it's I'm also asking.
0: first offenders versus this ain't a first yeah. offender kind of sure. thing. Right. Okay. And and the reality is, for a good number of people, prison saves their life. Wow. Keeps them off the street, gives them yeah. regiment. You know, they got a regiment in their life that they've never had before. They gotta get up, they gotta do this. That makes them job ready. And increasingly— But you have
1: to don't you have to embed the prison within some broader framework?
0: I'm not saying so we could send a lot of people to prison. But this idea that prison is the end of the world is, and there's a lot of educational programs. There's incredible incentives in prisons for these kids to get their GEDs. They get reduced sentencing and so on. And there's job training increasingly in prisons. These low-level certificate programs that I'm talking about, they can start those things in prison in many cases. So I'm not, I'm not, in favor of sending some first offender 16-year-old kid who was caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. But if there's a 17-year-old and this is the second time and he's got something else that, you know, we let him off on, you know, this may be a a kind of kid who is going to be dead in three years in some bullshit stuff in the neighborhood.
1: Okay, my guest at the Glenn <laughs> Show this week has been Robert Cherry. He's emeritus professor of economics at Brooklyn College. His book, "The State of the Black Family: Sixty Years of Tragedy and Failure," is out, and I recommend everybody. And initiatives offering hope. I left that part out. I <laughs> beg your pardon. Very important. That's uh, what Bob's the book a good is all guy, about. and he's devoted his life to this kind of stuff. And people ought to check him out. So thanks, Bob. Well, thank you very much.